Well, today, we're almost done with our series in, in the Psalms. My plan is to only do one more week um, after this. And uh, because I have something else I really feel we're supposed to pick like four weeks on in fall. I want to preach about harvest. I want to preach about harvest of souls. And I want to spend some time talking about that. So, so anyways, today we're going to look at um, the Psalms. And we are going to um, continue on with, with this, this idea. I'm trying to answer, you know, God is. What is God from the Psalms? And, you know, we've been God-centered, God-focused in this series. I'm trying to figure out, um, you know, what God speak to us to show the kind of the grandeur and the majesty and the fullness of God through the Psalms by looking at those themes in the Psalms that are repeated over and over and over. And so I hope you've been as blessed by this as I have been. And today we come to one that, that uh, I think is, I, I didn't do the math on it, but I think is the most often repeated theme in all of the Psalms. And it's this, God is worthy of our worship. That's what I will look at today. God is worthy of our worship. See, when I think of the Psalms, I think of worship. In fact, if you, if you were a, a Hebrew uh, student and you looked at what the, in the original Hebrew, what the title of the book of Psalms means in Hebrew, you know, we've translated it into English for us, but the original thing, it's, the word there means book of praises. That's what the Psalms are, they are about. They're a, they're a book of praises. Psalms has historically been considered by the church, it's been called the hymn book of the Bible. Matter of fact, many of the songs, and it wasn't by, it was maybe partially by design, I told Suzanne what I was preaching on, but it's as common, many of the songs that we sang today and that we sing every week are simply psalms put to music. Well, if you notice that, when you, if you read the psalms, you kind of park in the psalms, we'll sing a song and go, I've heard that before, where did that come from? Well, it's oftentimes just a psalm that a songwriter put to music. This morning, um, we sang, come, now's the time to worship, that's out of Psalm 95, that we sang the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, that's out of Psalm 119. And we sang the song, Give Thanks to the Lord, that's out of Psalm 107. And so, I don't know how many songs we sang, four today? Three of the four songs we sang today were simply psalms um, taken out, tweaked a little bit, and put to music for us. And that's been the history of the church for, for thousands of years. Even before the New Testament church, even before Jesus came, the Old Testament, that's what they did. They were, these, were, these were meant to be sung. They were poetry. They were meant to be sung. So, so um, this idea of worship, worshiping God, is uh, the main message of the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, you understand this message. God is worthy of our worship. That comes through loud and clear. Well, today what I want to do, in, to, to look at that huge topic from the book of Psalms, as I want to look at just one of the Psalms and take from it some of the dimensions of biblical worship that it teaches. See, because I have a, an objective in our worship. When I talk about worship today, I'm primarily talking about corporate worship, what we do in church. Um, it has, you know, we, there's, our lives are lives of worship, and I'll touch on that a little bit, but I'm primarily focused on, on course, corporate worship. What I want to do today is I want to look at a Psalm, and I want it to speak to us and form our worship. That's my objective today, that it would, it would form our worship. And I really think this is incredibly important for us right now because we need the Bible to define our worship, not our culture. Um, worship is one of the... There's a, churches are known for what's called worship wars. 
And people come and say, I don't like your worship, or I don't like this worship, I don't like that about worship. Newcomers come in and say, I like everything, but man, your worship's a little crazy. And what we have to understand is, we're not the ones who get to define what it's supposed to be like. That God defined what it's supposed to be like. And as his children, we want to learn what he has to say. We want the Bible to form what, what we view as proper worship, not our culture. You see, I grew up going to church like a lot of you did. And, and I would say this, though, and I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying this. I would say in the church I grew up in that our corporate worship was more influenced by culture than by Scripture. You see, what we were was a bunch of, I grew up in Cedarburg. In my church, we were a bunch of primarily German Lutherans, a few Swedes and Norwegians probably thrown in there, but primarily Northern Europeans who are really known for being strong, being reserved, and, uh, and so our worship really reflected that. You would say, yeah, this is a bunch of Germans sitting in church, being really strong and reserved, very emotionless, very non-expressive, and uh, so, so we were a reflection of our culture, probably more than being a reflection of Scripture. Now, obviously, we know something. Culture will affect how we worship. It just does. You know, um, I lived in the South. I, I lived in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And uh, I went to, a, I was the only white guy in the church I went to. I did it on purpose. I loved it. As a matter of fact, I am, I've been corrupted to this day because of that. If you notice, I get, I get well, I shouldn't say it caused problems. My drummer, who's not here today, he's on his honeymoon. Um, but David, I don't maybe do it with you as much. But Josh looks at me and he says basically this with his eyes. You're clapping on the wrong beat. <laughs> and I always say, blame the African Americans in Louisiana who get it right. They clap on the offbeat. So my, I clap on the offbeat. And, uh, and so, you know, I went there. Now, their, their worship was affected by their culture. I'm not trying to say it won't be at all affected by our culture. But I want us at Portview to make sure our worship lines up with the biblical pattern. And we're not, we don't allow it to be um, either, either um, held back because, you know, I'm stoic, whatever, or go crazy because I'm, oh, I'm this ethnic group and that's how we act. You know, and so, and so I want us to be biblical. That's my first thing. Now, I have to add something else today that I had absolutely no intention of adding to my sermon but I have to. I'd already draft. I'd already written my sermon. I knew in three weeks ago what I was going to preach. I wrote the sermon this last week. And the next day afterwards, I don't know if you are social media people, but I was bombarded with the latest topic about something about worship. And I want to mention it today, but I want to, I want to say something, a disclaimer beforehand. We are Christians. And if the numbers are right in America, only about contrary to what people wanted to believe in the past, the latest numbers out created by Christians and non-Christians say that the, the, the highest number of evangelical Christians in America would be 9%. Cambodia is 2%. Um, you know, so not that far behind. And that the conservative numbers are that America is maybe 6% evangelical. And so we are a completely, really non-Christian nation. And so I really always am hesitant to ever be one of these people that blasts, publicly blasts other Christians. And I don't want to be seen as blasting. But I think we need to be aware of our times. And, and, and don't take this too far, but, but this is what the scriptures say. Not Mark, but the scriptures say. That the end times, and I really believe, I've never been this big end times guy. I think the puzzle pieces are in place that this just might be it. Now, other people have believed that in the past. 
But they didn't have all the things going on that we have going on. I, I can see this can be the last generation. Now, it might not be. For a day, the Lord's a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. So he waits five minutes, and us and our next three generations of kids are gone, you know, in his timing. But this is what I know about the end times. It says at the end times, people will, will be attracted to teachers that will tickle their ears. They'll simply tell them what they want to hear. They'll say things that make them feel good, just make them feel blessed, and they're happy. And they go, and it's not talking about it's, talk, it's not talking about that people who don't want to follow God. When that was written in New Testament, it was written about Christians that at the end times would be attracted to people who would preach a gospel that's not real, it's not biblical. And and I don't want us to ever succumb to that. So what I'm going to say about the people that, are, that I'm going to mention today, and I see multi, men, many of you have read over and said, you know where I'm going with this. It's the reason I'm bringing it up. Um, is I don't, I'm not trying to say they're not in our camp, but at least to say this, I think they've, they've gone down, and I thought this for a long time, they've gone down a really slippery slope away from the real truth of the gospel. And today it's what they've come up being... being uh, you know, this big buzz about them this last week is because of a comment, some comments made in their church. Now, I'm talking about um, the Olsteins, the largest church in America, Joel Olstein and his wife, Victoria. And again, I'm not trying to blast them. I'm not commenting on their, on their faith. I don't know. I've never met them. And I know media can twist things, but I watched the video, and so did a whole bunch of you. And I want to tell you what they stood in church and said, and the reason I bring it up today, because it's about worship. And what she said was absolutely 100% unbiblical. The best post I saw about it, the whole of any of them, is somebody post, some of you saw it. They said, um, Bill Cosby comments on Victoria Olstein's um, comments. And so you get it, and, and, and she does her little thing. She says it's like 30 seconds long. And then they take a clip of Bill Cosby from the Cosby show, and he goes, that's just stupid. You know, and uh, that clipper, that's just, that's just, I think, stupid. He's talking to his son. That's just stupid. And it is, because this comment is so un, so unbiblical. But there's 30,000 people in that church, and they're celebrating, clapping, going, this is great. Matter of fact, everybody buys their books. Over millions, over a million of these books, copies sold. So a lot of you probably have their books. And so what I wanted to say is, there's a biblical way we do everything, and there's an unbiblical way. And I'm saying this is unbiblical. So let me just read what was said in their church service, because I want you to be aware of the fact that it's your responsibility to know the Word of God, and it's your responsibility to be, to be able to discern what's going on. I'll try to help you, but it's your responsibility to know your Bible and to be able to discern what's truth and what's error. And so the second anybody here, this was such a big buzz, anybody who knows their Bible at all said, you know, warning, 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 this is unbiblical. But here they're pastoring the largest church in America, and, and it's being celebrated, oh, this is right. You know, in the, in the biggest church. So it says this. This is, I'm just going to read part of it. It's just from an article. Um, it says this. A recently recorded video in, is circulating online of Victoria Olstein, wife of many church uh, speaker and author Joel Olstein. By the way, she's the co-pastor. So it's not just, she's, oh, the pastor's wife said something funny. She's the co-pastor of the biggest church of America. Um, calling on congregants at Lakewood Church. This is in um, Dallas or Houston. Dallas, right? Dallas. Everything's bigger in Texas. So um, so a huge church, over twenty five to 30,000 people on a weekend. Um, this is what she called on congregants at Lakewood Church to, quote, do good for your own self because obedience, the church and worship, are not for God as much for self-happiness. 
I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it, we're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. She declares in an unupdated un- 36-second clip with her husband um, standing by her side and nodding his head that that's, that's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. Quote, so I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. Osteen continues, when you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen? And I say, oh, oh my. Because that's not amen. That is completely unbiblical. And I don't know if I've ever stood in church before ever and taken some kind of media thing and read it before a sermon. But I thought, whether it's coincidental or it's the Holy Spirit's timing, I don't know. But I can't be responsible for every church in America, but I can be responsible for Portview. And just say this, as for us in our house, you know, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to do it right. Now, again, I'm not commenting on Joel or Victoria Olstein's salvation or their, I don't know, I never met the people. What I do know is that, is that what she said is 100% the opposite. Not just a little very deviation, it's 100% the opposite of what Scripture teaches. And, and we need to be aware that that, my friends, is the predominant thinking in evangelical Christianity today. I say it kind of regularly, and I feel like I'm just being kind of negative, but it's this self-focused version of Christianity that's not about elevating God. It's about just making you feel good. It's kind of funny because in that article, Suzanne was reading it, and I'm yelling, I'm yelling out loud as she's reading it, and I said, God doesn't want you to, God's primary purpose or um, goal for you is not to be happy, it's to be holy. And she starts reading the article, and she ends up quoting uh, Steve Camp, and, he, and about three lines later he goes, and God's not, God's primary purpose isn't to make us happy, it's to make us holy. And I said, see, <laughs> told you, <laughs> he's right, you know. But um, this is not to condemn them. I'm just saying it's because it's a warning to say, listen, the books you read, what you watch, Preachers you listen to, um, make sure they're biblical, okay? So what we want is we want Portview to make sure for our topic today that our worship lines up with the biblical pattern, right? So grab your Bibles, not your latest copy from somebody's book that they wrote to make a million dollars. Grab your Bibles. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that I wanted to make a million bucks? I'd simply write a book about how to make you feel good in Jesus. Isn't it appropriate that comes out a couple days later or a couple weeks later? How to just feel good in Jesus. You know, no, of course it sells copies because people don't want to change. They don't want to grow. They don't want to develop. They want to just feel good. Well, I, I'm in the same boat as you, <laughs> you know. I just want to say, yeah, let it go. But you know what? Um, I, want to be, I want to be honoring to God. And it's not a burden. It's not tough. It's not that it's, it's work. Matter of fact, it's so much better. Because if you live a self-indulged life, you'll be miserable. But if you live a life of bringing genuine glory to Jesus and you sacrifice and surrender your life for him, like the Bible says we ought to be living sacrifices, then we get something. Matter of fact, the psalm that's gripped me lately, Psalm 131, David's saying this, this mighty warrior, this great accomplisher. He says, I have... I have quieted myself, and my soul within me is like a weaned child laying on the chest of its mother. He's just saying, I live in such contentment in my spirit 
that I'm like this little child. My soul, he says, my soul is like a weaned child within me. That's the greatest thing in the world. Just being incredible peace with Jesus. Why do you can't buy that? And so uh, neither can false, a false, watered-down, shallow, selfish version of Christianity. It'll give you nothing. Nothing eternal, nothing lasting. Are you at Psalm 95 yet? I'm going to be done with my rantings. I usually don't get off track, but I'm done with my rantings for this morning. Psalm 95. Now you can turn there. So if you're visiting, I'm usually not a ranter. Um, but I just thought this was so incredibly coincidental or God-incidental that uh, I had to talk about it this morning. Because when I said it, three-quarters of you went to the person next to you because you all read the same articles. Psalm 95. But worship. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart. And they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. So, Psalm 95. Clearly, this psalm is about worship. Look at it. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Let us Worship. That's what it's about. Let us worship. Now, before we talk about anything that's going to form us into how we worship, I need you to think about. We need to think about something today. Um, what does that mean? Let us worship. What is worship? And I think this is so important because if Victoria Olstein understood what worship is, she could never have said what she said. So, what is worship? Well, I think a lot of people misunderstand worship, and they think worship is basically singing God's songs. On Sunday morning in church, that's worship. You know, and, and it is true that that can be worship, but worship is so much more than that. And, and my definition of worship, and I'm not taking this from anybody else, but it honestly, honestly define what worship is in a way that makes sense to me and is, and is authentic with the Scriptures, is this. I would say simply, worship is our expression of love and reverence to God. That's what worship is. Now, we can do that all kinds of ways. We do it through giving. We do it through serving. We do it through singing. All these different ways. But worship is, it's our expression, however we express that, our expression of love and reverence to God. See, for those of us who have come to experience forgiveness of our sins and eternal life through Jesus, our lives have been changed, haven't they? Are you different since you met Jesus? I'm a lot different. I always think of it this way. I used, and that's how I think of my prayers. I used to be a just a slug, a caterpillar, but God transformed me into a butterfly. I've, I've been I've been transformed. He made me to He made me to, to fly now. He made me beautiful now, not because of me, but but because of 
because of him. So my life and your lives, they've been changed because of Jesus. And now we have, because of that transformation, this love and this reverence for our wonderful God who has saved us and changed us. Well, our expression of that love is worship. When we express that in a way that says, I'm just so amazed by God, and we express that we honor him back, our expression of love is worship. Our worship is expressing to God his worthiness. And a lot of people define worship that way. Worship is worth, worth, worthiness. He's worth that much. That is his worthiness. It's his value. It's his pricelessness for who he is and what he has done for us. What we find in Psalm 95, along with many other places in the Psalms and all the rest of the scriptures, they show us how we can express our love, that love what we have, through worship to the Lord. And we need this so it can shape how we worship, so that we worship in a way that's defined by Scripture. So let's look at some of the ways this psalm shows us how to express our worship. And I'm going to do something else. I said I ranted today, which I normally don't do. I'm going to do something else today that I normally don't do. I hardly ever give you lists. I'm not a list preacher. But there's so much in this psalm. If I'm going to cover it, I'm going to cover seven things. So I'm just going to kind of go through seven things that are, that are defined about worship simply in Psalm 95. And they really are a covering of most everything that's taught in the rest of Scripture about how we express our worship to God. So we've been looking at forever, or the last couple of weeks rather, not forever, for you might feel like forever, but God is and filling in the blank. Well, today we're going to look at seven things that worship is. So worship is. Um, first of all, the first thing we see from Psalm 95 is worship is corporate. First thing you need to understand, worship is corporate. Three times in verse 1 and 2 we read this phrase, let us. Let us sing, let us um, where's the next one? Let us shout. Let us come before his presence. Let us, let us, let us. It doesn't say let me. Right? Let us. Well, worship should have a private element to it throughout the week. Matter of fact, Suzanne has always taught me, and she's my worship leader. She's always taught me that we'll never have good worship as a church, corporately, if people don't have good worship privately throughout the week. And I believe that to be true. So as much as private Worship is a real element in our lives, and it should be throughout the week, where we are, what are we doing? We're tending our spiritual fire throughout the week. That's right. But the psalmist here says something about worship that we need to really grasp onto, that that worship is designed also to be congregational, that it's not merely individual. It's why when we um, define as a church, and this is not new to us, it's from the Scriptures, we define from the Scriptures the primary purposes for the church. When we say that, we basically have five primary purposes for the church, that the top one, of the number one thing that we have as a primary purpose, the reason we exist as a church, is for corporately worshiping God with our lives. That's the top. Do you guys remember who Portview Pete is? Most of you do. Bring Portview Pete up there. Anybody not seen Pete before? Some of you, okay. Some of you haven't. Let's see some hands back here. Portview Pete, couldn't come up with a better name for him. Some guy called him Bathroom Guy, because I, I just when the, when, the art, when the artist designed that, I said, just take the shape of the guy in the bathroom door. And so it's Bathroom Guy, um, but it's Portview Pete. Um, I shouldn't have reminded anybody of that, should I? But, um, but Portview Pete is, is a tool for us. 
Poor Pew Pete for, at our church, we created this in a two-year process. We did, a group of leaders went through this leadership program. We tried to say, God, speak to us about how you want our church to be defined and where you want us to go. And, and we created Port View Pete as an illustration, more as an evaluation tool for us as a church and for you as individuals. That's why it's a body. And so at the very top of Port View Pete, his head, can you read what that says? It's a little small, but can you read what it says? It's worship. That when we look at the purposes that God created the church for, not just Port Pete, but all churches for, and we take it primarily out of Acts chapter 2, the purposes of the church, um, the number one thing we see, the most important thing, is that we understand that we are to worship God um, with our lives. That that is the number one thing we do. It is a corporate thing we do. Now, as a little aside, but give you guys a little test. Remember what the other ones are? Because these are defined how we do these five things, a lot of with the, with, the, with, the, with the wording. So the next one is connecting. It's connecting authentically with people in God's family. The next one is influencing the other arm, which is influencing seekers to find Jesus. Next one is mentoring. We mentor people towards Christ-like living. And the last one is serving. We serve passionately with the love of Jesus. But the point of that whole thing is that's, that's what we do as a church. And so what we do, we use, we use Pete as an evaluation tool all the time, where we look at it and we say, as a staff, are we accomplishing these five things? And if we're not, how do we have to do better at them? But remember, the reason we made it like this, and you, so many of you have um, magnets on your refrigerator with Pete on it. If you don't, they're at the Connection Center, take one home and slap it on your refrigerator to remind you it's an evaluation tool for you. So you say, am I really worshiping? And you ask this, am I really worshiping corporately in a way? That would bring honor to God. And, and you know, I, don't, I never lead by guilt. But when you evaluate yourself, you say, you know what? I, I actually regularly even attend corporate worship. You know, you're here on, on uh, Labor Day, so you do. Um, but, uh, you know, you ask this question, am I influencing seekers to find Jesus? You use that as an evaluation tool. Am I serving passionately with the love of Christ? Am I doing those things? And if not, it's not for condemnation's sake. It's to say, okay, God, you didn't design me to walk around missing an arm that I can't really function well with one arm. So God, guess what? I'm not doing really good at connecting authentically with others in God's family. So maybe I've got to join a connect group. You know, maybe I've got to get connected with somebody. Or I'm not really influencing anybody to seek and find Jesus. So how can I get better at evangelizing my neighborhood and my friends and family? And we're going to talk about that in this whole sermon series coming up in a couple weeks. So Port View Pete, the top thing, corporate worship is at the top. It's number one. Got that? All right. Number two, worship is not only corporate, worship is vocal. Worship is designed to be vocal. See, often people think worship is that it's not only supposed to be private, especially if you've been raised in a church like I was raised in. It's not, if you think worship is supposed to be private, and it's also supposed to be silent. You know, that's what a lot of people think. And your church background may have taught you this. Um, well, I would say this, that's the culture I was raised in at church, and many of you are well. So when worship is vocal, meaning people actually sing and praise, it stretches you a little bit. But Psalm 95 says things like this, sing and shout. That's vocal. You can't sing or shout silently, right? How do you shout silently? It's vocal. And I just believe this, God is blessed when his people come together and sing out to him. I believe God is smiles when we're coming together corporately and we're vocally worshiping him. Um, it's powerful, and I believe it's a blessing 
to God. So worship is vocal. Number three, got to keep moving. We'll be here forever, right? Number three, got seven of them. Worship is passionate. And this is one that may be a challenge also for some of you. Um, verses one and two say this. Each verse says this. It says, shout joyfully. Now, that speaks of passion and energy. How can you shout joyfully without passion? Okay, think of it this way. Take it out of worship. You're watching the Packers next Thursday night when they're going to hopefully win in Seattle without B.J. Raji. I don't know if they can, but they're going to try. Can you shout dispassionately? Oh, go Pack. Right? Can you do it? You can't shout dispassionately. And Psalm 95 speaks of how we... We're supposed to shout joyfully. How can you shout joyfully, dispassionately? It's impossible. Worship is designed to be passionate because you can't shout joyfully without passion. You know, when we are told to shout joyfully in the second half of verse 1, it's said twice, but in the second half of verse 1, the Hebrew word literally means there to raise a shout. There's a reason I point that out because you say, well, yeah, it says the same Shout joyfully, raise a shout. It seems, you know, similar. Say big deal. Well, there's a big deal. Because that's a phrase that was used repeatedly in Israel's history. When they were anticipating a battle or celebrating a victory, they would sh- raise a shout. Um, this is what we find in the exact word, the wording. This expression is used in Joshua chapter 6. When the Israelites were marching around the walls of Jericho. Remember that story? They're going to go to their first battle in the promised land. God doesn't say, okay, here's your strategic plan. It's the dumbest military plan in history. You know, here's your weapons. No, forget your weapons, take your horns, march around the city, and on this day, you're going to raise a shout. It says this, and when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, what happened? It says the walls collapsed. That's the same, the same word being used there. Raise a shout. It's also the same Hebrew word found in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when we read about what happened when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the camp. And Israel says this, All Israel raised a great shout so that the ground shook. Now that's quite a shout, that the walls shook. Friends, that's what the psalmist says our worship should be like. Our worship is to be passionate. You know, I know that that's a stretch for some people, especially in Ozaki County. It's not a stretch in Louisiana when I live there. Matter of fact, then I'm going kind of tone her down a little bit, you know. But here, for some of us, the way we've been raised, this is a big deal to say, I have to use some level of passion in my worship. Um, but this is it. This is the deal. That's the biblical pattern. That's what the Psalms say, is that we should, we should shout joyfully. So in other words, we should have some passion in what we do. Next thing, number four. And here's where it gets, you might be saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I know all this. But here's where it becomes very applicable to our culture. And I really could have used the Olstein thing at this point, but I wanted to lay it out in the front, um, is, is this. Worship is God-centered. Real worship is God-centered. Um, this is a good reminder because we're not to just get emotional. That's what some people think. Oh, I'm just singing passionately. You know, I'm, I'm shouting joyfully. I'm shaking the walls, you know. Um, a good reminder, because we're not to just get emotional or sing loudly for our own sake. Our focus should not be on how worship makes us feel, although that does bless us and 
And Victoria Olsen's right. It does bless you. But that's not supposed to be the focus, that um, our worship must be centered on God. Notice the first two verses again in Psalm 95. We're going to get to the rest of the verses in a while, but the first two verses say so much. Look, it says, we are to sing for joy to whom? To the Lord. We are to shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. We are to come before his presence and give him thanksgiving. We are to shout joyfully to him with psalms. Who's the focus of all that? Him. Who's not the focus of that? Me. Sorry, Victoria, you're wrong. God is supposed to be the focus. Our music, our worship, is to be God-centered, not man-centered. And I'm telling you, church, you need to be aware of this because that is a completely foreign concept in our everly, ever-increasing, self-indulgent, self-centered society. And it creeps in so subtly because it feels so good when everything's about me. But that's not what worship or Christianity are supposed to be. See, instead of thinking about how happy we are to be together worshiping God, which we are happy together worshiping God, the Psalms call us to sing directly to God. It's one reason I believe, and again, let me rant today. We're just family pretty much today because, you know, um, it's one reason people so easily just don't come to church. We say that on a day like today because, you know, we're way down, which is, you know, not the norm for us. I understand. That's not at all. It's a holiday weekend. I get that. I take vacations too. But it's because it's just about how does it make me feel. And so it doesn't matter that I'm doing something for God. I just skip it because it's not for God. It's for me. And if it's just for me, I want to do what makes me feel better, and I feel better at the lake than getting up early and going to church. That's how it suddenly creeps in and changes your focus of life. So you you trade God in for anything else. It's just self-centeredness is all it is. And we need to be aware of that. You know, I'm not going to ever judge you on that. I don't, you're not going to ever stand before me, but God's going to, you know, we're going to stand before God. And I'm not saying that he's condemning, but this is what the pattern it, it lays out, that it should be God-centered. Our Christianity, our worship is God-centered. And friends, God-centered worship is the heart of worship. It's the heart of worship. It's that time when it's God-centered, when you're singing to God, and he's, and he's the center of it, when you just sense that anointing and presence of the Holy Spirit. That is the greatest thing you could ever experience in this world, being in the presence of God. Number five, it's very closely tied. Worship is built on truth. Look at verses three through five. It says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hand formed the dry land. In worship, the psalmist does something. He rehearses what's true about God. He's saying, this is what's truth about God. He says, God is above all other gods. That God is the creator. He says he made the sea here and he formed a dry land. What the psalmist is basically do, he's, he's declaring truth and he sings of God's sovereignty and his supremacy. Friends, understand this. As we worship, as we sing these truths, They become ingrained in our hearts and our soul. And they become the fiber of our beings, and that gives us truth and strength to stand upon during life's ups and downs when we worship according to truth because it ingrains it into our lives. As we corporately sing these truths, the truths about God, us and our children and our grandchildren 
begin to embrace who God really is, the God of the Scriptures, so that when somebody says something that's error, they immediately say, wait a minute, that doesn't feel right. That's why, that's why when people heard those comments, they went, wait a minute, something's not right. Why? Because they had probably been worshiping in spirit and truth the right way, based on the truth of God, and they go, oh, well, that's not the truth of God. Something's not feel right here. Worship is supposed to be based on the truth of who God is. That's why, friends, we are really, really, you might not even know this, super careful about the songs that we sing in church. You know, people sometimes go, oh, I want to sing this song. There's certain songs people love, and, and I go, Suzanne, don't ever sing that song. And they'll be like, oh, I, I, really, I really hurt my father's feelings one time. He was talking about a song they sing in their church, and it's a great church, and it's not necessarily a bad song. But I think theologically, off base, he goes, I love the song. I said, that song, I didn't even think, it was boring. that song is terrible. That's rotten. I said, it doesn't even make sense. It's wrong. I wouldn't tell you because some of you have your favorite song. And I said, it's wrong. It's unbiblical. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I didn't realize I went a little over the top, and here I'm basically chastising my father, which is not really the way God would have us live. And so I'm like, ah, that was stupid. But, um, but we are really careful about the songs that we pick here. They must be theologically true, or we won't sing them, no matter how popular they are. And so, so we really look at it. Susanna's Arisha literally looks at the theology of the songs and says, does this line up with God's word? And so they have to be based on truth. The next thing is this. Worship, and this is where some of you are going to go, ah, oh, exhale. I'm going to do so. Ah, ah, okay. All three of you. Um, because this is the side that balances out the, what some could view as crazy. You know, shout joyfully, you know, and it's this. Number six, worship is reverent, okay? Look at verse six. It says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You see, there's a real change in tone here in the psalm. Remember, this whole psalm, Psalm 95, is about worship. So everything we're going to look at today is about worship. And there's this change in the tone here all of a sudden in the psalm. From this loud songs of joy to reverence and humility before God, this bowing down in, in, in humility, so submission before God. And friends, I think we can look at it this way. We are called in, in worship to move from praise to prostration. We're, we're called to move from just excitedness to bowing in his presence, in our, at least in, in our hearts and even physically doing that. And here's the truth. Worship involves both animated rejoicing, and speechless reverence. People tend to gravitate one or the other. The psalmist is saying this. No, they're both. He's telling you in one sense, shake the walls. In the next sense, he's saying bow down and be quiet and just be in awe of God. And his idea is this. Look at different places, different times, and even in the same setting, there's a place for both. Sometimes worship one minute, we're, you're shouting, and the next minute, you're, you're bowing. That's right, because... Worship involves both animated rejoicing and speechless reverence. There are times that the highest worship is simply silence before the Lord as an entire congregation. I think one of the most awe-inspiring worship experiences I've ever been in my life, and some of you have been Christians long enough to maybe have been part of it, way back when, when Promise Keepers was in its heyday, a million-plus men stood in the mall um, in Washington, D.C., and Jack Hayford led the prayer. Anybody was there? Anybody there? See some hands? Okay. And he said, I want you to bow down and be quiet. Here's why I think it was the most awe-inspiring time in my life. There were over one million men in a public place, and you could have heard a pin drop. 
I've never heard – you can't get three people to shut up, you know. Especially there's a whole bunch of pastors in the group, you know, like half a million of them probably, you know. And it was deafening the silence. There's a time for silence in worship. At times that's the highest form of a congregation's praise. And I'll be honest with you about about us because of our because who we are as an organization and our our history is in the assemblies of God and our our bent towards wanting to shake the walls. Um, we're probably a whole lot better at the noisy than the silent. It's more comfortable. Matter of fact, a lot of you, um, when there's any silence, you get uncomfortable. You know, I used to sell in another world. I used to be an, uh, a financial planner, and part of that was selling insurance. And you know one of the tricks we were taught? You'd get a husband and a wife together. You'd throw out the insurance policy that you want this person to buy. you basically say to the husband, if you really love your wife, you'll buy this. And then you don't say a word. You're counting your head to 30. They can never make it to 30. Impossible. 30 seconds of silence is like torture. And what almost always happens, the husband goes, well, I suppose we have to do that. Okay? Because silence, sometimes we're uncomfortable in silence. I'm saying this, it's almost making a point. Um, Silence can be powerful worship. And the psalmist is saying there is a place for both without the exclusion of others. Sometimes, as the Spirit leads us, we just need to be still and know that he is Lord. No noise, no prophetic words, no, you know, uh, um, spontaneous, you know, whatever. Just silence before the Lord. Silent awe. Humbling ourselves before God. It's powerful. This may include, you, according to the text here, kneeling. Kneeling at the altar, coming forward and kneeling. Um, at the end of a service, kneeling in, in honor and reverence to God. And I'd say this, and if the Lord, you feel compelled by the Lord just to bow in his presence, obey. You say, but people are watching me. Yeah, so what? So is God. And you're sensing his spirits telling you to do it. Who do you want to, who do you want to honor? God or man, right? And that leads us into our last point. The last one is just simply what I just said. Worship is obedient. Worship is obedient. Look at verses, the last half of 7 through verse 11. You might say, what does this have to do with anything? I'm going to explain it. He's going through all this worship stuff, and in the middle of verse 7 he goes, And today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, or as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tested me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger they shall not enter into my rest. The psalmist here is making this change here. That seems kind of strange. At one moment he's talking about singing and bowing down and the next he's referring to Israel's history in two different places that maybe you're familiar with or maybe you're not. Meribah and Massa, the places where the people grumbled against God. You know, and water came out of a rock. And, and uh, the key to, to making sense of this, what he's doing here is verse 7, where he says this, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, or in other words, do not disobey, like they did in Meribah and Massa. While talking about worship, the psalmist makes a point. Worship goes beyond expressing love to obedience. Beyond words to action. 
refers to these two times when Israelites were disobedient and rebellious at Meribah and Massah. Times when they were wandering in the wilderness and they began to grumble against God and grumble against his chosen leader Moses. And God got tired of their hard-hearted disobedience. Which, so what, because they were hard-hearted and disobedient, God said, I'm keeping them from entering the promised land, their place of rest. And what happened to that group of people? They all died in the wilderness. Not one of them entered into the rest that God had in the land of promise because of their hard-hearted disobedience. Now, it's very interesting. He's talking about this in the context of worship. You get that? He's talking about it in the context of worship. He's saying, don't disobey me. In, in, in worship and how you live your lives as an expression of love to me. The point he is making about worship is that worship is more than just coming together to sing, even loudly. He wants us to live out what we hear. That's worship. Obedience is worship. And maybe the Word of God, from reading it today or whenever, is now or is going to prompt you to do certain things. Prompt you to move, um, to, to be more expressive in worship. You know, you see people standing around you and their psalms say, lift up holy hands. And you're going, man, I feel like I should, but I'm not comfortable with that. And I'm not saying that you have to lift up your hands. When the Holy Spirit says, use for the prompting, I'm supposed to do that? Who are you going to obey? Obey God and begin to just worship Him. However it might be. So maybe He's prompted to be more expressive in worship. Obey, to obey is to worship. Maybe the Word of God has prompted you to be more committed to something in, the, in God's you know, realm that He has you. Maybe He's telling you He's supposed to, He wants you to be in Christian. I don't know. I'm not saying God's telling you that. But maybe He is. Obey. Because to obey is worship. Scripture says to obey is better than sacrifice. All this, he's talking about all the animal sacrifices. To obey him is more important than all that stuff. So all the religiosity he said is less important than to obey what he says. Obey what God's word and his spirit are saying to you about a life of worship. And I promise you, this is where Victoria missed the point. If you do that, then you'll be more blessed than you could ever imagine. Because God does love you, and he does want you to be blessed. And he is the most glorified when you are the most satisfied in him. That's true. But that doesn't come through self-centeredness. That comes from God-centeredness. And then he transforms you. And he gives you what the world doesn't offer. That peace where where I said earlier, where your soul is like a weaned child within you. You're going, I rest in Jesus. That's the greatest thing this world has to offer. And worship is part of getting there. Amen? Well, I think the absolute best way First, to end this worship service is the worship, right? And so um, I just challenge you. We're going to end with a worship song. Um, when you f- just join in worship, when you feel um, dismissed by the Holy Spirit, you need to leave. God bless you. Quietly make your way out of sanctuary. Have a wonderful Labor Day weekend. I'm so glad you came to church today. Bless you, friends. Let's worship together. Why don't you stand?